Welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the Gilded and Progressive Ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic making a nation into a neighborhood. Together with the railroad, the telegraph was hailed as the technology that would bind a fractured and almost broken nation after the Civil War, and the telephone was not far behind. Some predicted it would turn a far-flung country into a veritable neighborhood of intimates. But who actually used the telegraph and telephone in this era? Where were they built and for what purpose? Who owned them and who fought over its ownership? And what can the fights over these technologies tell us about the political and economic atmosphere of the Gilded Age in general? With me today to answer some of these questions and more is Professor Richard Jones, author of Network Nation, Inventing American Telecommunication. Richard, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let me once again ask the question I ask almost all my guests in the series. Let us imagine a technology journalist or a general observer of the United States visited the country at around the end of the Civil War, say the late 1860s, early 1870s, mm. the middle of the period around the 1890s, and at the end of this period after the First World War, to see how Americans were making use of the uh, relatively new technology of the telegraph and the brand new technology of the telephone. What would they see? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Well, mid-1870s, Western Union is building its headquarters uh, in in New York City, where where the uh, 195 Broadway, which would eventually be the, the Bell Building, is still there. Uh, so that was one of the tallest buildings in the country, 10 and a half stories high. They would see a, a dense and a network of telegraph wires in lower Manhattan. There would be telegraph wires strung long most railroads, east, west, north, south. But they would not themselves, in all likelihood, unless they were a journalist or a businessman or a politician, uh, they would not themselves have much personal experience with using the telegraph because the telegraph was expensive and it was configured for high-end users, for an exclusive exclusive clientele. If they wanted to communicate with friends, family over a distance or even conduct uh, ordinary business, they would do it via the mail. In fact, Western Union conducted most of its uh, ordinary business through the mail. And Western Union was the biggest telegraph network provider in the country. 1890s, the story is somewhat different. You have a new communication medium, telephone, which was configured as a short distance medium, primarily, and it took off with remarkable rapidity in the big cities. Now, rates were still high, but ordinary people saw the value of it. So you begin to get what we would 
what we long call pay telephones, where you could pay per call, which was unusual because most of the time you'd pay a hefty uh, a monthly subscription, which was in effect a, a yearly fee. The wires of New York, sorry, the streets of New York City would be blanketed with wires, many, many more than in the 1870s. And there was public pressure to put those wires underground. <clears throat> there would also be in small towns, in medium-sized cities, there would be telephone exchanges, and they would be less expensive than those to use in a New York City because the cost of switching was so high. And their ordinary people would begin to become uh, familiar with using electrically mediated communication. So the telephone and not the telegraph was the first electrically mediated communication network that ordinary people became accustomed to using. Now, your last date was First World War, right? Yes. So First World War, <clears throat> telephone wires in big cities, telegraph wires in big cities, all underground. So you don't, it's not as visual anymore. You don't see it. You will have telephone buildings uh, to collect your, to, to collect your fees. Um, you will have a couple, you'll have telegraph offices, not that visible. The big difference is, is there's a sense now that cities are connected by this almost um, organic or mystical force that you can talk to other people. The rates have come way down. There are many more calling plans and miracle of miracles. It's now possible to make a telephone call all the way across the continent. Now, it's very, very expensive, and almost no one would do it. It was kind of a publicity stunt on the part of the dominant network provider, Bell, but that was in place. So the the, the nation had become, as it were, a neighborhood, or at least that's how the publicists for Bell, which was the dominant network provider, that was how they told the story. So in a, in a way, visually less impressive, fewer wires overground, you're going to have telephone booths. You're going to have, for the telegraph company, messenger boys scurrying about. But the sense of being connected was what distinguished 1914 from 1890s and 1876. That's a great summary. Um, so let's add to that. When I, uh, when I read the Network Nation, which, by the way, is a great book. I think anyone should read it uh, to understand how this technology developed. <clears throat> I genuinely wondered, how is it that the telegraph, which is seemingly a relatively simple technology, and as you described, I hope we'll get into it later in the episode, um, pretty much anyone could enter uh, who just signed a simple form. Hmm. How is it no, I don't know, upstart financier or group of financiers or inventors said, okay, Western Union is only providing for the journalists and for the business and, uh, and for the politicians. Uh, why didn't anybody say why don't why don't I make a telegraph uh, telegraph network for the people providing things maybe at cheaper rates or offering all sorts of things? What an interesting question. There were many attempts to underbid Western Union. John Mackey, who was a uh, uh, a poor boy made good because he struck it rich silver mine, uh, Colorado. He designed a arrival to Western Union called or masterminded a rival to Western Union called Postal Telegraph in the 1880s. And the name was deliberate because the post office was cheap, uniform rates. Why can't we have a telegraph operated on the same principles? He 
he said. And he competed with Western Union uh, with greater and lesser degree of success <clears throat> up until the 1920s. 1870s, back up a decade, Jay Gould, successful railroad promoter, uh, also set up a rival firm to Western Union, and he had the uh, wherewithal to get a hold of some very valuable patents, including early patents of Thomas Edison. So he was a rival. Um, and 1840s, 1850s, there was a multitude of completing companies. So it wasn't as if, as your question suggests, nobody thought about competing with Western Union, but here's some reasons it didn't work. Number one, Western Union, which is the dominant network provider, 1866 on, figured out that they could get a lock on the market by entering into exclusive contracts with railroads for access to their rights of way. Country's big. It's expensive to maintain wires. If you do not have an easy way to repair them or to maintain them, railroad right away was perfect. So Western Union enters into those exclusive contracts. Jay Gould and 1879 figures out a way to break those contracts and that enables him brief period to compete with western union but then he takes over western union okay so why not permanent competition even with jay gould well what is the incentive to lowering rates you could say well you lower rates you increase the market but it's more complicated it's a bigger business <clears throat> so western union operated under the strategy that they're going to make the most money <clears throat> high rates, and limited access. The president of Western Union under Jay Gould, Norvin Green, would tell anyone who would listen, if you want to communicate inexpensively one part of the country to another, send a letter. Use the post office. Don't use Western Union. We're a high-end specialty service for an exclusive clientele. So, the business leaders who ran the dominant network providers simply did not see it in their interest to drop rates and expand access. And there wasn't any extraordinary popular demand for such a service because the post office was so effective. It was the post office and not the electric telegraph that was the Victorian internet. That is to say the communication medium was ubiquitous, was used um, on a regular basis by rich, poor, uh, one part of the country or another, and also overseas. So that's an answer to your, to your question. There were efforts, Western Union found a way around it, and then in the end, it's a corporation, unlike the networks in Europe, which are almost all government-owned and operated. It's a corporation. Corporations are in it for the money. You can make more money, high rates and low volume, than low rates and high volume. So you bring up a, a, a great segue into my next question. Um, as you mm. mentioned in the book, uh, Samuel Morse and certainly the people who uh, promoted the telegraph uh, were very keen, very enthusiastic um, that Congress effectively nationalized the telegraph mm -hmm. network or the emerging telegraph network. Yet, despite all sorts of interest, all sorts of promotion, despite, diff despite each party switching off power, um, Congress never seemed interested. Why is that? Morse had a vision of establishing electric telegraph network that would be an adjunct to the post office. The rationale for it, simple. 
Post office circulates information at high speed. Telegraph does the same. If the telegraph were owned and operated by any organization other than the post office, it would be an invitation to speculation for insiders. It could be used to manipulate markets. So that was Morse's argument. There's also a practical reason he wants to sell it, is that he did not want to develop the network himself. He was a painter. He was a diffident man. He was in love with the daughter of the patent commissioner. He was not your modal entrepreneur who wants to set up a network on his own. So you have the ostensible reason, then you have maybe the actual reason. The newspaper press was almost unanimous in favor of government ownership and operation. Journalists were worried that if commercial entities uh, in charge of the of this new medium, that they would be used to the disadvantage of the newspapers. In fact, the New York Associated Press, which after many shifts would become today's Associated Press, they're related, they're not exactly the same organization. New York Associated Press was uh, organized in part to beat back the challenge posed by Samuel Morse, because why couldn't he integrate forward into providing news rather than simply uh, circulating information, providing a platform for others. Congress had numerous opportunities to nationalize the telegraph. President Grant was in favor of it after the Civil War. It was a favorite of certain Republican public figures. That was the time when the Republican Party was more activist than the Democratic Party. There were elaborate plans for a so-called postal telegraph, which would be some sort of a hybrid. And look across the Atlantic, Britain and France had nationalized the telegraph. So why shouldn't the United States follow their lead? Well, Congress debated. The Western Union had lobbyists. It's not a medium for the people like the post office. If the government did take it over, would there be opportunity for corruption? What would be the consequence of the government being having a consolidated information infrastructure? That was a problem in the 17, 1870s, 1880s. By the time you get to the First World War, you'll have a president of Bell, Theodore Vail, who wants to take over the telegraph and telephone. You have a uh, under corporate auspices. And, and you then have a postmaster general who wants to nationalize the whole kit and caboodle. So the, the, the political um, kind of logic is different in the First World War era, where you have a telephone executive who, who simply say, who says, we're going to work closely with the government. We're going to um, provide a service that, that would be uh, regulated by the government. We just don't want to be owned by the government. And that's in response to a postmaster general who wants to take the whole thing over. That was not quite the balance of power in the 1870s and 80s. And that helps explain why there were dozens of bills to nationalize or uh, postalize, as it was called, the telegraph. That's why none of them got anywhere in the 70s and 80s. <clears throat> Great answer. Um, if I may make a little not quite a side note, but a bit of a detour. Um, I was quite struck by one uh, one phrase you used to explain uh, the what you call the political economy of technology in this uh, age that was filled with inventions. You put, said, invention is not innovation. I was wondering if you could elaborate on this uh, in the context of the telegraph and the telephone. Well, so, some of your listeners may be wondering when they 
here I've written a book called Network Nation, Inventing American Telecommunications, who the central figures will be. And the expectation would be, oh, it's going to be Alexander Graham Bell and Samuel Morse and Thomas Edison, maybe Elijah Gray. And it's going to be a story of the struggles between these heroic individuals to come up with these brilliant new ideas that transform the world. Well, that's not how I've structured the book, because that's not what happened. Yes, you do have very creative individuals come up with new ideas, but these new ideas only matter when they're institutionalized, when they're made part of a network, when they are scaled up. And that is the process of innovation, the scaling up, the making an invention accessible to large numbers of people, not necessarily all the people, but large numbers of people. And that's the more salient historical issue, it seems to me. So much of the historical writing on uh, big tech, new tech, uh, however you want to call it, is preoccupied with these heroic individuals. Today, there's a lot of writing about Elon Musk, so on. Um, but that's not where the real story lies. It lies in the extension, political struggles over, and indeed the establishment of new norms concerning uh, how we communicate, how we share ideas. And that's what this book is about. It's really about the political economy of network expansion. That's where the innovation lies, rather than with heroic individuals. And then you could ask the question, and I, I won't go on too long about this, but you could ask the question, well, why then is there so much emphasis on the Edisons and the Bells and the Elijah Grays, uh, Samuel Morse's? And one reason for that is because of the way American patent law is structured. American patent law rewards not the first to post or the first to say, ah, I have an invention, but it rewards the first person to actually invent whatever it is that you're trying to get a patent for, which almost inevitably creates a market for stories about heroic individuals, often from the backwoods, outsiders, misunderstood. And so there's a political economic reason that we place so much emphasis in the annals of technology on inventors. Following up on that, you mentioned the importance of political economy. You mentioned that there were basically, and there, in my opinion, there still are three major modes of dealing with uh, dealing with the challenge of uh, big business that seems a bit overmighty, both in the Gilded Age and in our own. You might call them anti-monopoly, government regulation, and government ownership. How is it that the, the dominant approach, okay, they didn't really succeed in, in breaking Western Union, but how is it the dominant public approach of politicians, uh, really in both parties, uh, shifted from anti-monopoly to debating between regulation and government ownership until well into the 20th century? For 40 years, in the 1840s, and roughly 1880-81, anti-monopoly was the reigning uh, strategy for reigning in uh, telegraph network providers. So, for example, let's find a way to weaken the Morse patent, New York lawmakers say. Let's find a way to link what do the weaken Western Union's stranglehold on the railroads, Horstman say. First led to New York Telegraph Act of 1848, second led to the National Telegraph Act of 1866. 
The latter, Tele National Telegraph Act, created an informational environment, political economy, in which competition between a small number of rivals was encouraged. And the rivals were Jay Gould, who was the outsider, the upstart, and Western Union under a fellow named William Orton. So it was Gould versus Orton. And so we had an experiment in anti-monopoly in, in the regulation of, of a network. That is to say, anti, the, the, the regulatory tool would be laws to prevent consolidation. So you can call that, but it's different from your kind of regulation. Okay, 1881, it was obvious when Jay Gould takes over Western Union that anti-monopoly as a regulatory tool had failed. The goal was to encourage large numbers of rival network providers. Now you've got one huge mega network provider. So anti-monopoly was seen as it's either doomed to fail or it's easily manipulated by insiders like Jay Gould. So then you go to a period where, okay, we're not going to regulate or structure via monopoly. Let's regulate via some kind of government uh, administrative apparatus. By uh, and, and it was a standoff for several decades. Eventually, by 1910, the telegraph is put under the jurisdiction of the Interstate Commerce Commission. And then we get regulatory proceedings with a kind of juridical court-like flavor. Um, and by that time, uh, Telegraph had ceased to be that important in American life. And one of the lessons of my book, or one of the unexpected, really, discoveries, was that it was the more heavily regulated sector, that is to say, the telephone sector, that was more innovative. So regulation and innovation often go together because the telephone operating companies were highly regulated right from the beginning. That is to say, your rates were set. What market you could serve was set. Um, who you had to provide uh, free service to, all that was set. That was much, much more uh, coercive, let's say, in telephone than in telegraph. Telephone was more innovative. And that led to pressure by the First World War for the government to take it over. Now, government, municipal, federal. Why should we have a telephone operating company in a city in which the rates are regulated, but they may be higher or they may be, in, may be partial to one group or another? Should we not municipalize it? This was a very lively debate in the 1900s and teens, pressure for government ownership. Most of those efforts failed. There were few that succeeded, most of them failed. They were blocked both by the dominant network providers, typically Bell, or what would eventually become AT&T, and sometimes by rivals. By about 1907, you have a, a discovery in the telephone market that's comparable to the discovery in the telegraph market in 1881. 1881, the lawmakers look around, Promoters look around, reformers look around. I see competition is not the solution. Anti-monopoly fails. That happened in telephone 1907. So from that point, the First World War, then you shift to, are we going to regulate it in a way, say, by the states as opposed to the municipalities in a more structured way? Or what would happen if the government took it over? And there was a very uh, lively campaign for the so-called postalization 
of the telephone during the First World War, led by Woodrow Wilson's postmaster general that had considerable support in the Senate. And in fact, for a brief period of time, when the United States was at war, the government did postalize the telephone um, and put the postmaster general in charge. So the, 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 if you think of it, and I think you're right to say that these three options, anti-monopoly to government ownership, we swung from one to the other with 1907 as the way station. But by the end of the First World War, it was a common consensus, which was shared not only by the Bell leaders who didn't like being postalized. They, were, they didn't lose their jobs, um, but they, they had to report to the government official, which they didn't like at all. In conjunction with the labor unions and in conjunction with many telephone users, they concluded that the government ownership and operation just wasn't a success. And, and there's a complicated reasons for that we could get into if you could like. But from that time until the present, we've had regulated networks. We've never had really completely open, unregulated network. In some ways, that's a will of the wisp. In some ways, that's a dream. That's, an, that's a utopia. But we've been regulated information infrastructure ever since. Mm -hmm. All right. Great summary. Um... If we were to mention, uh, you mentioned the rivals of telephone companies. One of the things that I was struck by the uh, when reading the book was that I'm used to the idea that the calls for reform, uh, especially in the progressive era, came primarily from intellectuals, from white-collar professionals, uh, from populists out in the prairie and in the South. Uh, but from what, from what you describe, it sounds like some of the most sometimes even radical sounding and aggressive uh, pro-reformers actually came from local business elites, uh, lower tier business people, uh, upstart competitors, kind of counterintuitive. And I wanted to know, uh, A, how, how effective do you think they were in this whole fight for reforming or regulation? And B, uh, could one perhaps extrapolate from that to uh, the other fights against uh, the robber barons later in this period? So the telephone was best developed, most uh, integrated into everyday life in the big cities. That's where the money was made, and that's where it the networks were the most complicated, which is not to say there were not telephones in middle-sized cities and small towns. But it was in the big cities that the political contests are the sharpest. And you've got telephone users who are very troubled by the rates they're charged and the quality of service that they're getting. So, for example, in, in, in New York City, you'd have protests. In Rochester, New York, industrial mid-sized industrial city, you'd have protests. You'd actually have boycotts of the telephone that would go on for days, weeks and in, in Rochester so the users are concerned. And then there are urban reformers, Frank Parsons in Boston comes to mind, who are aghast at the idea that this technically advanced medium for communication is being operated on a commercial basis because the assumption was if it's operated on a commercial basis, the rates are going to be high and the service is going to be limited. In other words, the telephone story is going to recapitulate the telegraph story. Now, in fact, that's not quite what happened, because in the big cities, you have insider network providers who make the calculus 
that the best way for us to stay in business and to stay healthy as a commercial venture is to do an end run around the city aldermen. Because the city aldermen were able to extort the telephone companies. And this happened in every big city, and it was very well known. So you get around from the aldermen, you build a political constituency among the voters. Middle-sized cities, small towns, rivals to Bell will spring up and they will seek funding, and sometimes they get the funding, in order to provide a comparable service or even a cheaper service. So what I haven't mentioned here are farmers. I haven't mentioned um, Southern populists. Um, they certainly had ideas about the telephone. But if it's not a big city, and if it's not a city in which markets can be contested, that simply is not where the center of the political debate is going to take place. We forget the United States was three countries as late as the First World War. There's the South, there's the Trans-Mississippi West, and then there's the industrial kind of Northeast and Midwest heartland. It was in the Northeast and the Midwest heartland where the telephone debates occurred. And this has been, uh, until I wrote my book, this was not well understood because previous historians had not read the trade press They'd not dug into the sources. They simply made facile assumptions about how the network operated on the basis, in many instances, of the public relations uh, broadcast bulletins put out by the network providers themselves. So you have to get on the ground level, understand how these networks operated in cities, towns, large and small, to understand political dynamics. And the fights were the most intense in the Northeast, in the Midwest, cities like San Francisco, not in the South and West. Professor John, uh, this has been an absolutely excellent uh, introduction to a fascinating subject. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. Thank you. See you all next time at Avi's Conversational Forum. Thank you.